The explosiveness of ski jumping, with skiers launching off a towering scaffold and soaring like a bird through the air. The aerobic energy of cross-country skiing, with athletes powering up steep hills, then accelerating on thin edge down sweeping turns in a head-to-head -head battle to the finish line. This is Ticket to Fly, the USA Nordic Podcast. Each episode of Ticket to Fly will take you inside the international world of ski jumping and Nordic combined, bringing you into the start house and up close with the stars of the sport. Join me now in welcoming your host for Ticket to Fly, veteran Nordic commentator Peter Graves. Thank you very much, Tom Kelly, and welcome everybody to USA Nordic's Ticket to Fly. We'll be talking to newsmakers in the sport of ski jumping and Nordic combined every month. And we're very, very happy to have all of you listeners with us. A very exciting show today. We are going to have Walter Hoffer for almost 30 years. Walter was the FIS uh, ski jump race director. He has done a wonderful job and uh, recently retired after a great tenure. First of all, uh, Walter, let me welcome you to the show, and uh, it's a joy to have you with us. Thank you very much for that invitation. Thank you, Mike. Uh, you are so welcome. So let me start kind of at the beginning by asking you, how did you get into ski jumping? Were I don't believe you were a jumper, but is that right? No, um, but I was always involved in any kind of sport, uh, mostly in football uh, myself. But then I started to do a second educational system. I started to uh, study physical education and uh, at the age of 25. And then I was searching for a job to, uh, to work in between my study. And I was asked by the Austrian Ski Federation um, they were looking for a physio and they were looking for a kind of serviceman. And they took me, um, I, I saw this um, offer in a newspaper and I made a telephone call and they took me just right away. And that was the first day of a full-time job for the next 38 years. So it was my stepping in as um, standing on a sideline watching ski jumping. I was always interested in ski jumping on TV, but I have never seen it on site yet so uh you grew up in austria where did you grow up in the southern part of austria uh ski jumping fans knows it's nearby planica in slovenia and nearby villach which is a small um town uh, nearby my village is uh, my village is on a lake uh, milstettersee and the village is known seeboden Okay. Okay. Well, Austria, of course, uh, such a big hub of ski jumping activity. Um, so um, you played such a decisive and important role in charting the course for ski jumping. And um, let me ask you to begin with what your uh, 
you retired at Planitza. That was the final day for you. So it's near your home. Um, and you must have been reflective of what you had achieved and the different things you did. Tell me a little bit about um, maybe your thoughts going in your mind that day and in the subsequent months about uh, what you did for the sport of jumping. Yeah, first of all, it brings me back to my first engagement in ski jumping when I was a um, um, serviceman and the second coach for the Austrian Ski Federation. Then I was asked by the German Ski Federation for another four year to be the second coach for the for Rudi Tusch, who was the head coach at that moment. So all in all, 10 years where I was standing on a sideline and uh, was watching ski jumping. And whatever um, it takes, I saw that there is a certain value in this sport. It was a very small, tiny um, side event. It was not very much uh, uh, taken by the popularity, by, uh, by the spectators. And But I saw there is something in, in this sport which has to be shown, has to be wrapped up in another way because uh, um, ski jumping was already uh, very interesting to see. But uh, at that time, the TV coverage and the access for the spectators on site was very limited. And, you know, it's interesting to me, having uh, spent time in the World Cup circuit and, and uh, Olympic Games with, with jumping, um, and, and I think this is during your tenure, uh, the ratings, and this is particularly in Europe, but the ratings for ski jumping are simply off the charts. They're amongst the highest rated shows ever. And, and so maybe a two-part question what draws people in to watch it on television? And secondly, you must be very proud to have been part of that uh, tremendous resurgence of what is a very old sport. I start to answer the second question. That means I never took it as my uh, work. I had always the feeling that I was just coordinating a group of people uh, mostly the members of the jumping committee of FIS. I had great support from the um, FIS, uh, from, from the president, Gianfranco Caspar, and they let us work and do what we wanted to do. So it was a teamwork, starting from the athletes, the coaches, the, the officials, and finally I was just a kind of coordinating system. And uh, it was small enough, the discipline, so to do it in on one table, and this was very good in the very beginning because it started very, very uh, deep with uh, all the changes. Because when I started uh, to, to join FIS, to join ski jumping in my um, race director's role, um, ski jumping had four different formats. Nobody actually knew what's going on in ski flying when they had three rounds and only two were counting. Um, uh, uh, compared with uh, Olympic Games or Championships, which was, was also different. And the World Cup also had another, had another regulation. So the first three years took just to unify, to form one and the same rule. And this, is, this was the basis uh, to create one and the same format. 
And this, the format was actually the first step to the popularity. That means in the old days when I was coaching, we had uh, starting fields of more than 100, 120 athletes. And you can imagine in the first round when uh, the old system, when you had to change the in-run gate after number 70, and number 71 was continuing and another 120 athletes had to jump. Uh, TV told us, do your job. We make some pictures. And at the end of the day, we make it, we make a delayed, uh, uh, summary. So it was not attractive enough to take ski jumping live. And this, uh, was the very beginning to start to cooperate with uh, TV because in the old days as a coach, we were always somehow hiding the athletes from the from the public we didn't want to show where are the changing rooms we didn't want to show the athletes when they are close to the starting gate we didn't want to show them when they were exposed to their own um, environment so we hide it somehow the surroundings around ski jumping and tv they just took the jumps uh, more or less one at the same repetition with three four five cameras they ju just choose the right uh, position, which was the easiest for them. And so ski jumping was uh, 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 mostly at that time just delayed or in a long lasting uh, competition. So suddenly, um, as soon as we have found this kind of format that we use a qualification, that we use a first competition round with a certain number and the second round with only a final round, um, TV started to be interested in us. And then they asked us, can we go to the athletes area? Can we go to the warm-up room at the start? Can we go uh, with cameras somewhere uh, closer to the performance of athletes? And in the very beginning, we were very reluctant, but we, together with the coaches and the athletes, we were willing to um, move towards the TV coverage and suddenly when you look at uh, a ski jumping competition today at the forehead tournament we use more than 30 cameras to evaluate a ski jumping event and this brings ski jumping from any angle of uh, performance and this is one of the successful starts it was one of the successful starts to have a good TV coverage and that brought us uh, spectators on site and that brought us spectators on TV. And uh, this, this was one of the first steps. We still had one problem. Uh, it was the transition from the classical style to the V style. So it was very, very difficult to lead a competition um, on behalf of the jury uh, because the performance and the range of distances were so wide that it was almost impossible to bring a competition through with one at the same starting gate. But uh, we also had some accidents. We also had uh, safety uh, uh, cases. And that brought us to the idea to make ski jumping safer. But you can imagine this was not very welcome by those who were watching ski jumping. The, the so-called expert, they told me, Hey, you, can, you cannot make ski jumping uh, safe. Ski jumping is a risky sport. People would like to see risky sport. Don't make it smooth. Don't make it glad. But it wasn't true. We were able in all these uh, decades to make ski jumping safer. And the more people trusted us, athletes, coaches, um, spectators, the more athletes appeared. And finally, 
This was one of the reasons why the female started to ski jump. And this was, of course, a great success that we could provide to the uh, parents a team, a system, a discipline which was safe enough for the athletes, for the men and female athletes. And this was also a part of this uh, uh, success. Yeah, very interesting. And and I take particular note uh, at the beginning of your your answer uh, that you and it's I think it's very vintage, Walter Hoffer. You you give praise to others. Uh, yeah, we know uh, these are complicated jobs when you're fist race director. You know you have to be technical, but there's there's politics involved in all of that. But you have always, I think, stood above politics and uh, shared the limelight with others and given them credit. I, I think that speaks a lot about Walter Hoffer. Yeah, but you have to understand the background because I started in such a position, you can imagine, it, it is such a close discipline, all these uh, disciplines which have a kind of closed uh, subsystem, uh, they don't let someone in from outside. I was an outsider and I had to convince I had to convince every day all the people that we are on the right track. And what I have done in the very beginning when I started to lead uh, the discipline, uh, I took immediately some real experts uh, for ski jumping. I never ever said anything about the performance of athletes. For that I engaged people who were really ski jumper. You can, uh, uh, you will remember in the, after three, four years, I took Miran Tepes, who was uh, in the field of ski jumping, well known as a very fair and uh, a great sportsman. I took him as my assistant and this was the first great success because people trusted him. When he say, yes, this day we can jump, the next day when he said, oh, today it's too difficult, it's too uh, unregular, then we stopped the competition. So I took some um, um, knowledge um, from real experts, and I you will go. You can go back to thirty years. You will have. You will never find a statement from me about the performance of athletes. This was always done by so-called real ski jumpers, and this is uh, why I always say uh, um, I don't do it alone. I needed a team, and I created the team. And all of those people I created around me were former ski jumpers. Just to give um, the athletes and the coaches the feeling that they are treated well. Do you see, if you look in your crystal ball towards the future, um, even new innovations coming up? I mean, we certainly, uh, you know, the V style was obviously a very big deal and it really threatened for a while to undermine certain aspects of the sport. There was a lot of controversy, particularly with the judges. Uh, but um, do you see new things coming? Uh, look, we were uh, surprised by the introduction of the V style by Jan Bokloff. There were some athletes before who used different styles rather than the classical style. But uh, Bokleff was the first one who really uh, used the V style. And uh, even he, with his V style, was not always competitive to win a competition. So for us, it was not really obviously that the V style will take over the complete discipline. So it took two, three years 
until the Olympics in Albaville when a 16-year-old grown-up V-style ski jumper Tony Niemenen won the Olympics. From that point on, nobody uh, um, was able to jump the classical style anymore. So this was a transition period uh, which took longer than expected. Normally, the V-style has an effectivity of more than 30% compared to the classical style. But we didn't know it at that time. And But from that point on, only V-style jumpers were competitive enough to win a competition. So, But that brought a lot of uh, problems with us. All the old jumping hills were specified and the profiles were made for the classical style. So it took us more than 20 years to rebuild all these facilities. And the last major hill which was rebuilt was in 29. It was Oslo for the Holmenkollen for the championships in 2011. So that 20 years, we were enforced to chase the athletes with their innovations, with their uh, uh, technique. They found something new and we were always a bit behind but not more than one year. After one year, we could change the regulations. So that was also with the judges. You have to understand, the V-style um, surprised the whole discipline, but you start a season with one of the same regulation. You cannot change the regulation during a competition season. And the judges, they had to use their current, actual, valid uh, judging system. So. When a V-style was used, it was, in the old uh, rules, it was a mistake. That's why uh, Boklev got deductions. But we couldn't change the, the, the rules before the end of the season. This is a part of the game. I guess I'm old enough to remember Steve Collins from Canada with the uh, Delta Wing, I think it was called, uh, a little bit before Blokov, maybe around the time of the 80 Olympic Games. Yes, there were some others also. Anders Town from Sweden who took the skis aside. Then also Martin Nicken and he used one ski under his body. So he, he always had a kind of uh, ski uh, fall uh, in mistake in the air, but it was accepted by the judges because he was so greatly uh, performing. Uh, but Andy Felder, for example, he used also a kind of... Uh, a different style when he put both skis aside on the same side. So there were some uh, styles before the introduction of the V style. Uh, but this is just just uh, one part. The V style um, enforced us to do something more with the equipment. The athletes tend to use too much front portion of the skis uh, with the V style because this was excellent uh, aerodynamic. And, uh, but we had a lot of falls, so we had to make a rule to, to uh, where the, the, the binding has to be mounted. That uh, has to be done in, uh, from a theoretical point of view, and we were lucky because the athletes didn't accept this rule that we say where he has to mount the binding. But after one season, we could prove there was no fault in the air anymore. So this was a very, very important step. And from that point on, we started to make the regulations very clear for the athletes and for the coaches. Uh, first, the skis were specified, then the jumping suits. It took another four or five years with the jumping suits uh, because in the very beginning, the jumping suit was just a sportswear. And then within one season, an athlete started to have the normal material, which was just five millimeters thick. He used 
1.3 millimeter and the oversized uh, suit and he was unbeatable and uh, that was 1995-96 then we started to make cuttings for the for the for the suit so and this was always a kind of a step uh, a bit after the athletes but at least we were just late with one year so the skis were specified the suits were specified then athletes started to manipulate with their weight they knew uh, light flies light on and and far and they started to manipulate with their light uh, with their weight and that brought us to the next problem because we wanted to find a system which makes uh, athletes keeps athletes healthy but uh, in a performance in in a performance that they can win a competition so the tricky point in it ski jumping was told in the media that we create underweight athletes but as a matter of fact the really light weight athletes like uh, Fedori, like Weissflug, like uh, uh, Nikonen, like um, another one I wanted to say, um, uh, I will take the name later on. So, uh, Simon, Simon Amman, um, they said, I can't be heavier. I am just as I am. But those athletes who their real athletic for uh, athletes, they had the problem to go down with the weight. So it was not a lightweight problem. It was a problem for those athletes who are heavier. They started to, to uh, bring their weight down. And it, this was unhealthy. So when you see uh, Hannawald, who was one of the uh, discussions at that time, when you see him today, I ask him all the time when I meet him. He is not much heavier than in his best performance days. Very interesting. Well, you're listening to Walter Hoffer. This is Ticket to Fly. I'm Peter Graves. Uh, we're going to continue on. Walter, we've talked about a lot of the really good stuff. Any thing that strikes in your mind as, as a disappointment or something that the sport was not able to achieve? What are your thoughts on that? Okay. Uh, since I was involved from the very beginning, I knew that ski jumping is a niche sport. You cannot compare ski jumping with any other sport. It is not fair to compare ski jumping with uh, alpine skiing, to compare ski jumping with tennis or even football. Ski jumping is a niche sport, but we were able to... Um, take out from this possibility, from this sporty value what our athletes perform, at least a TV product. Because we cannot sell any piece of the equipment of an athlete to the uh, people. It is not a mass sport. Uh, there is no industry behind and there is no uh, tourism area which is searching for ski jumping hills. It is not so easy to finance ski jumping from the organizing point of view and the coaching point of view and for the federation as, um, as well. So our only uh, source was to gain money uh, through conducting ski jumping events. And we uh, knew that we have to turn ski jumping into a media product. So in the very beginning, we were told sometimes that we do what TV uh, want to, uh, wants us to do. 
but it was quite different. We started to use the TV for our purpose. And successful you were with that. I want to turn to ski jumping in America, uh, of course, a, a, a very broad topic. But um, overall, and you've been here plenty of times, uh, what are your thoughts on on ski jumping in this country? Here, uh, of course, I understand the, the, the wide open uh, spaces over there. It's so difficult to coordinate uh, such a small discipline. Uh, to make um, meetings together, to make uh, uh, training together. It is a wide open country and um, um, most of them start to train in Europe with uh, other teams. I know this is a bit difficult and uh, I was always a bit wondering why the USA is not able to uh, have at least one mutual point. You know, we were in Iron Mountain with excellent competitions and huge media and uh, interest. But there was no, uh, we were not able to rise enough uh, interest uh, from the whole country. So uh, when we were in Iron Mountain with one or two or three World Cup events, uh, if we don't go there, nobody was complaining. Okay, we, you don't come again. And there, there is a second uh, impact, which is... Um, uh, interesting in in the states, when you uh, host an outdoor event, you will rarely see a live transmission. But this is something which is very popular in Europe. Um, sport has to be live, indoor or outdoor doesn't matter. In Europe, you see ski jumping live. In the states, you will see the very same event fourteen days later in connection with the uh, athlete's uh, personal story or so. So it's a different approach to the to the uh, TV setup. And maybe this is also one reason. But um, otherwise, I, I really can't explain. We had Olympic Games uh, from Lake Placid uh, to Salt Lake City, even Vancouver and Calgary, can you count uh, together? Um, I'm... It was not really something left, no, no legacy, no um, after use. In non, uh, very, very seldom we had on the very same Olympic venues uh, um, competitions again. So it's, it's a bit uh, uh, different uh, story than in Europe. Well, and of course, I mean, we have had champions in this country. Jeff Hastings uh, had a great uh, Sarajevo and a World Cup career, Mike Holland, Jim Holland, all of them. But uh, USA Nordic is certainly wanting to build a, a program, and, and they are working hard on that with depth, not just one person. Yeah. No, at the moment, uh, in the last two, three years, I do see a lot of um, um, activities. And uh, I think there is a, a good team also from the official side uh, who are going in the right direction for sure, but of course it takes a bit of a uh, bit time. When you look at uh, Finland, they were suffering after their last uh, championship in 2001. Uh, the federation almost fall apart, and it takes till now to recover. Uh, you see how difficult it is sometimes to be even in in a very uh, traditional country to come back to the top. So the top field is very tight. And to the old five, big five, we call, we call them big five, which was Germany, Norway, Finland, Austria, and Japan, 
they have their own support from the university point of view, they have materials, they have companies in their country. So this big five, they were enlarged with other countries. Now we have Slovenia, now we have Poland. Um, uh, you will see another, maybe the Russians will, will come up. So it is very, very difficult to be on the top all the time. Right. And it can be cyclical, but I, I've always thought it was great for the sport when we had many champions. I mean, you see what Mawish, for example, did in Poland, or Simon Amman, what he did in, in Switzerland, uh, and, and the Slovenians and whatnot. This is all good stuff. But I can tell you, uh, at least the I learned from the TV production point of view a lot from, from you guys. Um, at Salt Lake City, when we had our TV briefings before the competition, uh, it was the team event. I was told from uh, Peter Diamond, I don't know if you know him. Yes, I know him well. He was responsible for the TV production. And he said to me, look, Walter, when an athlete is jumping down, why do you release all the data already before the, before the TV commentator can say it because the TV commentator he has to wait for the repetitions he cannot uh, release the distance and the scores and the, the rank during a, a, a video uh, slow-mo but the uh, uh, commentators in the stadium they can do and you will hear over the TV uh, uh, microphone what this uh, commentator on the, on the, in the stadium will say I realized and I keep kept back the data until the TV production after the slow-mos went back to the athlete's close-up for a picture. And we were so successful because in a team event, the Germans won and uh, Martin Schmidt as the last jumper, he made a salto in the, in the outrun and we would have uh, missed it if we wouldn't have waited with the data until we come back to him. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I remember that. I mean, being, I was one of the PA announcers uh, for jumping at uh, Utah Olympic Park then. So I, I remember that well. And, and that builds drama. Yes. That's a great thing. And uh, I was told by the media, by the so called TV experts, whenever you see something on TV which appears smooth and, 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 and uh, fine for the spectators, they don't know why. But you need time. And that's why we also use a flexible interval. We don't we don't let the athletes go down in a in a certain uh, interval of one minute, for example. We play with the TV production. That means when an athlete jumps very far, the director would like to make one or two repetitions more, and we wait for the next athlete a bit longer because the next athlete know that, and he get his he has uh, he deserves to get the same amount of time like the previous athlete. So this is very smooth rundown, um, co incorporating between the jury, between the, the starter and the TV production. That makes a competition on TV very smooth. Yeah, that's so fascinating, uh, Walter, to hear that. I, I wanted to segue to Michigan again, uh, to Copper Peak, a hill that uh, has had a long legacy. It was very early in ski flying. Uh, and you've been up there at least once because they're trying to get it, <coughs> excuse me, organized again uh, and going. What what do you know now? What's happening up there? And how important is that uh, that we get this going? Uh, to me, it's very important. Look, 
I am so um, long waiting for because I knew it is the op opener for the States and it is the opener for ski flying in the States and it is the opener for the females uh, to, to jump on flying hills in the States because it is it would be the first time where a ski flying hill will be covered with plastic and we could then uh, change our regulations which at the moment allow only to compete in a competition on a flying hill when you have a plastic covered hill you can make training sessions during the summer seasons you, be, you will be prepared for the winter season you could start in december with ski flying because the athletes would be prepared for and I'm quite sure in summertime in, in Copa Peak uh, in September when the Indian fall is uh, uh, creating uh, beautiful colors, we have to be there when the people are uh, uh, coming to this venue and uh, I know that all the holiday with and biker will show up. At the moment they do it because they want to go up to the, to the shaky Inran Tower. <laughs> it's the challenge for them. But we want to fly there. We have to fly there. We need Copa Peak for the international field, not only for the States. Yeah, that's great. And we're all hoping the best. Let's talk about women's ski jumping. I mean, it was maybe IOC was a little bit slow to embrace it. FIS was a little quicker to embrace it. But in my view, not only was it absolutely imperative that women come to the sport and you can see that uh, many of them uh, oftentimes are uh, uh, out jumping the men in some cases, uh, but I, it certainly made the sport better. Look, it was never a female case because uh, from the sporty point of view, it was never ever a doubt that the female can do the same like the boys. But the female itself, they were not, um, um, from the number point of view, not enough uh, uh, athletes in the very beginning. You know, if you would like to be uh, taken seriously, you need a certain number of athletes. When you want to have a winner, you also need, need a couple of, of losers. So the group of female jumpers in the very beginning was very inhomogene. We had some adult athletes, we had some uh, 12, 13, 14 year old, and they were very performative. And when you uh, remember that um, a young lady with 15, 16 uh, becomes uh, um, um, a woman, that she probably sometimes is um, uh, taken over by a 12, 13 year old girl, which is uh, very slim, very light. And this was a, is a very, very difficult period to keep the athletes into the system. So we still have to live with a very limited number of female athletes. And uh, we are at the moment still not able to have one or two series at the very same time, like we do for the men. So we still talk about quality, not about quantity. From the, for the quality, there is no doubt. The ladies, they can do everything, but you cannot create uh, jumping competitions on the, on the large hill when you don't have enough athletes who uh, are entered to this competition. So it has nothing to do with the performance. It has something to do with the organization and the, the development of the discipline. 
Okay, thank you for that. Uh, Walter, our time is drawing a little short, but uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, uh, before I get to my final question, maybe you give me one or two names and why. Who were your most uh, intriguing, interesting jumpers that you interacted with? Oh, <laughs> tough question, because there were so many. Look, I was when I was coaching, I was so close to Martin Nikanen because he only accepted one athlete in the whole field, and that was Andreas Felder, because Andreas Felder uh, beat him. And so he was many times together with Andy Felder, and I was a serviceman from, from Andy, so I knew Mati probably uh, closer than anyone else. Uh, so I... Even him, I wouldn't pick out uh, to name him alone because there were so many in, in my period and it would not be fair to, to take one of, of them. But there were so many great champas. From, I mean, uh, in each country you can uh, find five to ten athletes who were really great. All these ski champas are ambassadors for our discipline. We, this is our treasure, this is our value, the ski jumpers and their performance. Because we have a say in ski jumping, when you look at the TV uh, uh, ski jumping competition, you easily can see that in ski jumping, the head is ahead. And this has something to say. The ski jumper is very mentalist uh, uh, oriented. He knows that he has only 100% to calculate. He cannot say like a wild uh, a rookie, Oh, today I give 110. 110 means an injury. So these are very um, mentally orientated athletes, and all of them. Um, doesn't matter what the performance say or, or the place or the rank. They who travel down in planets, huh, uh, when you see them on site to jump off from the takeoff, it's unbelievable what they are able to, to do. So all of them are greatly ski jumpers. Yeah. Thank you for that. Uh, maybe finally, uh, I'd love to explore any thoughts you have or, or even advice on uh, growing the jumping sport in America. You already alluded to the great distances. This is very different from Europe. Of course, the other thing is, is we and Canada are on the other side of the great pond. And uh, but any uh, any kind of final thoughts about uh, uh, American jumping? Yeah, I mean, uh, it was finally then uh, a bit too short my period of three decades because the last decade we started to use the former from the eastern part of Europe after the um, falling apart of Soviet Union. We had almost twenty nations who had background in ski jumping. From Estland to Kazakhstan, we had almost 20 nations, um, starting from the from middle of Europe with Czechia, with Slovakia, with Poland, uh, further on to Russia, to, to Kazakhstan. And we had to develop them there because they started to, to come back after 20 years um, silence. And that uh, brought a lot of work for us. Sochi was a part of it. And now we have beautiful facilities in Russia, in Tchaikovsky, in Nishintagil, in Kazakhstan, in Almaty, and in Shashinsk. So here we are ready 
to start for the international uh, presentation. And now we have to come back to the Westerly Hemisphere, to USA and Canada. We have to, because this is very, very important. And I'm 100% convinced that there will be a battle between Russia and uh, USA in the future on the field of play of ski jumping. And um, this uh, we just have to create. We, ha we have to build up the Tribune and then the athletes will appear anyhow. So you cannot create athletes, but you can provoke them in, in, in a way that you build up the stage where they can perform. Um, because ski jumping is popular because of the Tribune the athletes have. There are so many other disciplines where athletes train um, as much as uh, ski jumpers, but they are not known. You need a stage to be to for your for your performance, and this is what ski jumping do, building up the stages. Uh, Walter, it's been such a delight to have you with us. I, I can't thank you enough for sharing your thoughts. It's it's all fascinating, and uh, thank you so much for for the leadership you gave for so long and so freely to ski jumping. It's a pleasure to talk to you. All right. That's Walter Hoffer as we reminisce about his career and the sport of ski jumping. We want to remind you that you can subscribe to Ticket to Fly on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks to Walter Hoffer, our producer, Tom Kelly. We'll have more great interviews from the world of ski jumping coming up. For all of us, this is Peter Graves. Have a wonderful day, and thanks for listening.